Well, good evening. On behalf of the Princeton Committee Against Terrorism, uh, I'd like to welcome you all very much to coming to our talk for, with a uh, very distinguished alumnus, Steve Forbes of the class of 1970, who will be sharing his thoughts with us on what happens after Iraq. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Andrew Peake, a senior here at Princeton and a fellow with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a national organization that has been instrumental in making this event possible and in spreading uh, reasoned debate and dialogue about foreign affairs and America's role in the world, both in policy circles and across, in universities across the country. So again, we welcome you. We look forward to your questions following Mr. Forbes' talk. And we are please, let's please have a round of applause for Andrew Peake. Thank you. Our distinguished speaker tonight, uh, Mr. Steve Forbes, is President and Chief Executive Officer of Forbes and Editor-in-Chief of Forbes Magazine. He resumed this role in 2000 after a leave of absence to campaign for the Republican presidential nomination. Mr. Forbes is chairman of the company's American Heritage Division, publisher of American Heritage Magazine, and has also launched media projects such as Forbes FYI, Forbes ASAP, Forbes Global, Forbes the Japanese Edition, Forbes Brazil, the Gilder Technology Report, and Forbes.com. Mr. Forbes writes editorials for each of the issue of Forbes under the heading Fact and Comment and is the only writer to have won the prestigious Crystal Owl Award four times. Mr. Forbes is honorary chairman of Americans for Hope, Growth, and Opportunity and served as chairman of the board of directors of Empower America in addition to numerous other academic and philanthropic boards. Not so long ago, in perhaps his crowning achievement, Mr. Forbes earned his bachelor's degree at Princeton University. Mr. Forbes is also currently on the board of the Foundation for Defense Democracies, a nonpartisan think tank which studies the effect and threat terror terrorism poses to free societies. The organization publishes several policy papers per year discussing terrorist problems in countries such as Jordan, Turkey, Israel, the United States, and India. The Foundation for Defense of Democracies sent myself and Samuel Spector to Israel for three weeks in August to study terrorism and counterterrorism at Tel Aviv University and numerous military bases around the country. Mr. Forbes' involvement with this and other organizations, as well as his highly accomplished career in the United States and abroad, give him a unique position from which to discuss possible American responses to Iraqi noncompliance with UN disarmament resolutions. It is with great pleasure that I present our most distinguished alumni, or one of them, Mr. Steve Forbes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew, for that very nice and gracious introduction. There are a couple of nice parts of it. Uh, one is, was the diplomatic way you glided over my attempts to make a midlife career change from publishing to politics. Obviously, it didn't work, which is why I'm here tonight. 
And I also appreciate you just mentioning that I managed to graduate from this institution without getting into what was my grade point average, which would probably take a microscope to find. Uh, and I must say, being here back at Makash brings back many memories, uh, warm ones, at least during the winter, when it can get stifling hot in here, and trying to stay awake through innumerably boring lectures. So I hope tonight uh, mine, if it's boring, at least won't give you indigestion if you ate before you came here. But I was asked tonight, as Andrew indicated, to make some remarks about Iraq and the post-Iraq world, what it means for the United States and the global political and political economy. In terms of Iraq itself, a war is coming. It will happen sooner rather than later, probably by this February. The reason is that Saddam is not going to back down, regardless of whatever noises he might make. He will not allow unimpeded, unlimited access of weapons inspectors who have the right not only to go where they want in Iraq, including his so-called presidential palaces, but also the right to have Iraqi scientists leave that country for questioning with their families so they don't have to worry about retribution if they tell the weapons inspectors the truth. He simply would not survive in that kind of environment. The war itself, when it comes, will be, I think, relatively short. Unlike the Gulf War in 1991, when we began it with a two-month bombing campaign, in this case, the campaign in the air and the land will begin simultaneously. Our allies will be primarily the British and the Turks, Turks coming in from the north, and most of the basing will be done from Kuwait and Qatar. Saddam army is significantly weaker than it was in 1991, so in terms of sheer military power, this should be a relatively short affair. But that begs the main question, and that is, will Saddam be able to use biological and chemical weapons before he's taken out? In that sense, he is like Hitler. He's not going to leave this world without trying to take as much of it as he can, with him as he can. The question then is, will his officers obey his orders to use those weapons of mass destruction if he has them, if he's been able to weaponize them? There are precedents, both heartening and disheartening. In World War II, Nazi Germany literally leveled the city of Warsaw before it retreated before Soviet armies, sent in demolition teams, and literally blew the whole place to rubble. By contrast, in 1944, Nazi officers disobeyed Hitler's order to do the same thing to Paris, which is why Paris survived the war. So will it be Warsaw or will it be Paris? That is the question. And one of the things I think the United States and its allies will do at the commencement of hostilities is make abundantly clear to Iraqi officers that if they obey Saddam's orders to use biological and chemical weapons, those officers after the conflict will be tried as war criminals and subject to immediate execution. Whereas if they defect or disobey those orders, they can have a part in the new regime. The other major question is, will Saddam be able to launch missiles against Israel and Kuwait with the purpose of trying to widen the war? He knows that if the war concentrates solely on Iraq, it will be like a replay of 1991, short and he will lose 
If he can widen the war, then at least he might have hope that he can have a grand conflagration before he goes down. I don't believe that the war will widen despite his best efforts. The Israelis, I think, have developed, unlike 1991, better weapons of missile defense. And if they do decide to retaliate, they won't use nuclear weapons, as some fear, like former Ambassador Butler. And they will concentrate on military targets and not trying to inflame the situation. In terms of the United States, in terms of reaction, there may attempt, be attempts made to do terrorist attacks on the homeland. But those terrorist attacks will likely happen regardless of what happens to Saddam, whether he survives or whether he does not survive. In terms of using the biological and chemical weapons, he may be able to use them, but I think we should have enough intelligence to know where they are and how to take them out before he can use them. And that, combined with the warning to Iraqi officers, may prevent the worst from happening. This then leads to the question, why will we move against Saddam Hussein? Why will we do what we should have done but didn't do in the Gulf War of 1990-91? The war against Iraq will be part and parcel of the war against terror. As you know, for 40 years, Western nations have averted their eyes against the growing terrorist forces around the world. When a terrorist outrage was perpetrated, the reaction was to respond with vehement rhetoric against it, perhaps take a retaliatory measure or two, and then go back to business as usual. But post-September 11th, that attitude of averting one's eyes, of doing just periodic retaliations, ended. The President and I think our allies have made clear there will be no more passivity, that we must and will root terrorism out wherever it may be found around the world. Terrorists need, if they're to have any strength, they need sanctuaries. They need places and governments that will provide them the means both in terms of weapons, in terms of training and money, and in terms of land, to be able to train and plan terrorist outrages. As you know, last year, earlier this year in the State of the Union Address, President Bush made reference to the axis of evil, naming Iran, North Korea, and Iraq as the three worst sanctuaries for terrorism. The various other nations, of course, involved with terrorism, including Libya, Cuba, Syria, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen, but certainly in the aftermath of Afghanistan, where we did show resolve, certain states like Yemen are at least pretending, or at least moving, to try to cooperate with us against terrorism. But Saddam himself, unfortunately, has shown himself to be incorrigibly evil. Just look at the record. He has waged two wars of aggression against neighbors, Iran and Kuwait, that took over one million lives. He has more than once tried to develop nuclear weapons. In 1981, he came very close to it until the Israelis bombed his principal facility. And when we inspected Iraq in 1991 in the aftermath of the Gulf War, our intelligence sources were surprised at how far Saddam had come in rebuilding, trying to rebuild his, uh, his attempts to build nuclear weapons. He was much further along than our intelligence uh, forces thought he was. He's also spending an inordinate amount of resources on developing biological and chemical weapons. He's used those weapons against his own people, particularly the Kurds, literally killing thousands of them in the most hideous way possible. He's had a long record of aiding and harboring terrorists and terrorist groups. And he's made a show of it, such as uh, offering money to Palestinian suicide bombers, their families. He still has ambitions of extending his influence in the Middle East and perhaps elsewhere. 
But why else would he spend so much money and resources developing and trying to weaponize chemical and biological agents? He's certainly not doing because he has an interest in chemistry. He still has ambitions. And on the nuclear front, he's still trying to develop nuclear weapons. After the Gulf War, despite any agreements he made, he and his government routinely hampered U.N. weapons inspection efforts. From 1991 to 1998, despite those obstacles, those inspectors still found literally scores of tons of biological and chemical agents, including mustard gas, which has a history back to World War I. In 1998, Saddam peremptorily threw out the U.N. inspection team headed by Ambassador Richard Butler, and the U.S. response, unfortunately, was pathetically weak. We just uh, said he shouldn't do it, but we did nothing to punish him for it and people like bin Laden took note of it. He has violated, as many of you know, more than a dozen U.N. resolutions. Now, this gets to the U.N. itself. If the United Nations wants to be a source of international law, then it must support enforcement of international law. Otherwise, it should simply go the way of the League of Nations, a fine debating society, but not a real force for having good and moral law around the world. If the U.N. can't move against somebody like Saddam Hussein with the record that he has, what good is this organization? What ultimately it can, what can it do? Yes, it is good for things such as refugees and emergency efforts like that, but in terms of trying to create a framework and atmosphere for international law, if it cannot move, find itself incapable of taking forceful steps against Saddam Hussein, then it will sink into simply irrelevancy and a source of patronage for governments around the world. So the moral and geopolitical case against Saddam is overwhelming. Aggression against his neighbors, developing biological and chemical weapons and nuclear weapons, supporting and abetting terrorism, and committing mass murder. This, of course, leads then to the question and gets to the overall war against terrorism. The reason that we have a war against terrorism is really a battle between the forces of reaction and oppression versus a modern, open, and liberal society. Terrorists see themselves, many of them, as virtuous. They'll acknowledge that states such as the United States and other nations have more freedom than what they're willing to allow when they get to rule. But they'll say that our liberty is simply a license for decadence, and they'll point to our vulgar and sleazy culture, our high rates of divorce, our sexual diseases. They'll even point to people like Jerry Springer and say, you call this a virtuous Western open civilized society? They'll say, if that's liberty, they want to have no part of it. But the fact of the matter is that their version of virtue is simply stultifying oppression particularly against women. They don't realize that virtue truly comes from liberty, not from tyranny. But that's not the way they see the world. Moreover, there's a frustration factor as well. Certainly in the Middle East, Islam is not what it was several centuries ago when it was the leading force of civilization around the world. And many people ask themselves, what went wrong? Why did the West pull out in front of us? But instead of focusing on how you modernize and adapt and reform, they want to try to turn back the clock 
to an era that existed several centuries ago. They don't look at the examples of India and China, both great civilizations, which for a while appeared to be stagnant, falling behind, but are now surging forward. India, for example, now is the world's largest software producer outside of the United States. China, you go to Shanghai, vibrant city. That whole country is having growth rates even during a global recession. So India and China demonstrate that you can move forward. Even people in the Middle East, many of them recognize they need to make fundamental changes and reforms. As one pointed out to me when I visited uh, Malaysia, which has a large Muslim population, somebody from Egypt pointed out that 40, 50 years ago, Egypt had a nation where its per capita income was three to four times that of South Korea. Today, South Korea has a per capita income more than 10 times that of Egypt. And when it comes to construction projects in Egypt, they often turn to South Korean engineers and construction companies. So why do these other parts of the world move ahead while they stay behind? So most recognize they have to make fundamental changes, which I'll touch on in a few minutes, but others think that terrorism is the answer of trying to reestablish oppression and to try to turn back the clock to several centuries ago. This then leads to the question, what happens to post-war Iraq? Iraq itself will undergo a long occupation, just as Afghanistan will. We'll be involved in those, that country for a long, long time, just as we are with Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, and a different set of circumstances, the Korean Peninsula. Now, like Afghanistan, construction of a new liberal regime, civil society in Iraq will take a while, and immediately we'll have to make efforts to prevent a communal slaughter between the two factions of Islam there. That's why some people are suggesting that the Hashemites, who were overthrown, the Hashemite monarchy was overthrown in 1958, ought to be restored, just as they brought back the old king of Afghanistan as a symbol of unity to a country that really has many, many different ethnic factions. Whether that happens, I don't know. But certainly in Jordan, the Hashemites have done a very credible job in a very, very volatile region. Liberalization in Iraq as anywhere will not be easy, but if the U.S. and its allies stick to it, I think you will start to see forces of civil society emerge there, just as you're beginning to see it, haltingly, even in an unpromising area like Afghanistan. Iraq has had a history of cosmopolitanism before the Baathists took over in the late 1950s, and those old traditions may emerge again. What then about Iraq's Mideast neighbors? I think after the Iraq war, the United States will start to put pressure on nations such as Egypt, Algeria, and Saudi Arabia to begin their own liberalization. Just as during the Cold War, we put similar pressures on states such as South Korea, Taiwan, and Chile to start to liberalize, even though we're involved in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. In those cases, the liberalization began on the economic side. As those countries began to grow economically, they created new burgeoning middle classes that demanded political reforms, and political reforms followed in the wake of economic reforms. Or it can go the way of the Philippines, Grenada, Panama, Serbia, all of which are now trying to establish regimes of the rule of law and democracy and liberalization after hideous dictatorships. In fact, most countries and most peoples, I think, recognize that they have to move towards modernization 
or the rest, <coughs> excuse me, the rest of the world will simply pass them by. What then about Saudi Arabia? The blunt truth is that Saudi Arabia has been a huge source of funding for the forces that we are fighting today. They're doing so because a handful of them believe. <coughs> Excuse me, let me get some water. As an economist, I believe in liquidity. <coughs> but in terms, in terms of Saudi Arabia, <coughs> in terms of Saudi Arabia, there's no question that the Saudi regime has been a principal source of funding. A handful of that regime, part of that royal family, does so because they want to spread their version of Islam, which is a throwback, very, very rigid, very, very extreme. But most of them do it simply as a payoff, hoping that if they pay these forces off, they'll be left alone. Pay the gangsters off, they won't blow up your shop. But we have to be blunt with Saudi Arabia. Those days of payoffs have to stop. They're still doing some of that funding today, particularly the madrasas, which are extreme Islamic schools. Most of the Pakistani schools are now madrasas funded by the Saudis. That has to stop. Then this leads to the question, all right, what if you start to introduce the forces of liberalism? What if you start to get some democracy emerging there? What if the if fundamentalists win those elections? What then? They probably won't win it, but what if they do, as they did in Algeria 10 years ago? What happens then? Well, I think we have to take the attitude, if you want that kind of regime, and bring it in in a free election, as long as you have periodic elections, you can live with that regime. And that's what's happened with Iran. Even though they have a clerical dictatorship, Iran does have periodic elections. And in recent years, the mullahs have been thrashed in those elections. They're now holding power in Iran, not by the consent of the governed, but simply through sheer force and secret police oppression. The one country in that part of the world today where the United States is immensely popular in the street is Iran, especially among young people. After September 11th, there are demonstrations, especially by young people in Iran, calling for support for the United States and ending the clerical regime in Iran. In short, what you could see, especially if the war on Iraq is successful, you could see in the next year or two happening in Iran what happened in Iran in 1978 when local uprisings ended the regime of the Shah. You could see the same thing happen in Iran, ending the regime of the mullahs and the ayatollahs. You look at it in terms of democracy, you look at a country such as India, which has a very large Muslim population, and even though you do have periodic communal strife, it isn't a bad situation. They do live relatively peacefully most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. You don't look to India as a source of extreme Islamic fundamental terrorism. They come from authoritarian regimes and dictatorships. So in terms of democracy, let it come. If the bad guys win, let them try to rule. In most cases, they'll run the country and the economy into the ground. And if you have periodic free elections, they will be tossed out, just as they would have been tossed out 
if the mullahs obeyed the election results in Iran starting several years ago. Some people ask, well, if you have a war against Iraq, what's going to happen to oil? The fact of the matter is, Iraq has the second largest reserves in the world. They've been not very good at exploring and finding those reserves and producing that oil. The oil is plentiful. Moreover, there's globs of oil in nations such as Russia, China, and Mexico. There's no shortage of oil in the world today. As a matter of fact, if you're looking out long term, the relative importance of oil is going to decline. More and more of our electricity is going to come from coal, gas, nuclear power, and alternative sources of energy, not from oil. That's a long-term trend. So oil is plentiful, and its relative importance in the decades to come is simply going to decline more and more. What about the other two evils that the President referred to earlier this year, Iran and North Korea? So I mentioned in the case of Iran, I think internal forces may bring about a substantial regime change. Iran is a huge source of terror in the world today. In southern Lebanon, you see them uh, financing and giving numerous rockets and other weapons to Hezbollah. And as a matter of fact, in the next year or two, in terms of the Israeli conflict with the Palestinians, one of the major sources of conflict is not going to be inside the Palestinian territories, but in southern Lebanon, when the Israelis finally move to take Hezbollah out. That is going to be a long and tough and bloody struggle. Hezbollah is very, very well armed and trained. It's not going to be a surgical strike. It's going to take casualties to do it. In terms of North Korea, you heard the other day that North Korea finally admitted what intelligence knew a long time ago, that it has been developing nuclear weapons in contravention of its 1994 agreement. But other than its, its ability to make weapons and missiles, North Korea is probably one of the most poverty-stricken nations on the earth today. Literally hundreds of thousands, and some estimate to be millions, of North Koreans have died from famine in the last decade. Yet Kim Jong-il continues to spend all his resources on weapons, uh, nuclear weapons, and weapons of mass destruction. What will happen now is, now that he's seen that the United States is firm, what's likely to happen is that the regime in North Korea, as long as it can, will try to use its potential and real nuclear capability to extort money from the West. Say, we'll do bad things unless you pay us off. What I think the U.S. response will ultimately will be, we're going to quarantine you. You're not going to be able to sell your weapons outside of North Korea anymore to states like Iran and Iraq. You're going to be isolated and quarantined. If you want our money, you have to let us have access with inspectors to make sure that weapons program is halted. If you hold that weapons, halt that weapons program, you will get the money, but you're not going to get the money unless we see that you're actually obeying any agreements that you make. So the Korean Peninsula will be a source of tension in the next few years, but I think we can avoid with a, with a combination of carrot and stick, but in a sense of firmness, we can avoid another Korean war. Other countries around the world, Pakistan is a very troubled country. It is a very divided country, very, very divided. What Pakistan needs is what Turkey had after the First World War, and that is the equivalent of an Ataturk. Whether Musharraf can fulfill that role of being a firm leader, but introducing liberalizing forces, as Ataturk did in the 1920s, remains to be seen. 
But that is going to be a dicey situation because Pakistan is not a homogenous country at all. The largest Muslim country in the world today, of course, is Indonesia. We all know what happened there a few weeks ago. But from what we can gather, while the radicals there have become more violent, they've not extended their popularity and power, which is perhaps one reason why they've resorted to the terrorist measures they've taken. With regard to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a growing number of Palestinians are recognizing that the methods that they've followed in recent years are simply a dead end. It's not leading them anywhere. Moreover, as you know, the Sharon government fell the other day. What you're likely to see happen in the next couple of years is the emergence of an Israeli government headed by somebody like Bibi Netanyahu. Now, the initial reaction will be in some capitals, Netanyahu being a very conservative person, very much of a hawk, that means they'll say that that conflict will get worse. Actually, Netanyahu will have the power and a unified government to be able to cut a deal with a new Palestinian leadership. Just as it took a Richard Nixon, who was a firm anti-communist, to open up the U.S. and China in the early 1970s, so too may take a Netanyahu to cut a new deal with the Palestinians that this current higgly-piggly government headed by Sharon and Perez could not do. If that happens, what you'll see in that part of the world is a cold peace. There'll be no love lost between the Palestinians and the Israelis, but the Palestinians will have a new state. They will have home rule, and you'll see emerge in Palestinian tradition a mercantile tradition. The Palestinians have been had a great mercantile tradition in the past. It started to emerge again before this latest uprising, and if they have any kind of government that is a tad more liberal and less corrupt than that of the PLA and Mr. Arafat, I think you're going to start to see some real economic growth in that part of the world. So long term, the real threat won't be the Iranians and the Iraqis and the North Koreans of the world. The real threat will be technology making it possible for small groups of people to develop weapons, biological and chemical weapons. And that's why here in the U.S. as part of our effort, we must seriously ramp up seriously ramp up our efforts to develop antidotes and learn more about how we vaccinate our nervous system against these potential weapons. Right now in the United States, it takes 7 to 12 years to develop a drug to cure a disease by the time it clears all the regulatory hurdles. We have to have the mindset, not 7 to 12 years, but 7 to 12 days. A whole different approach by the FDA and others. We have to do it. This will involve considerable research and development. It will involve immense waste of money when you do things quickly. But this is wartime. You better do it quickly, because if you read histories of certain diseases, you don't want to take the risk of being unprepared for them. In terms of a country like Turkey, as you know, the other day, the Turks elected a fundamentalist party, or at least a more pro-Muslim party. But that wasn't a lurch towards Ayatollahism or sympathy for Saddam, that was reaction to endemic corruption and genuine economic distress. Turkey's economy is in dreadful condition today. They had a currency collapse earlier this year. The only reason you haven't had even worse economic conditions there is that half of the economy was virtually dollarized informally, so the collapse of the Turkish lira uh, didn't bring the whole economy to a screeching halt. And this gets to something We've been talking about politics and economics and religion. This gets to something that is vitally important, 
And that is the role that an agency called the International Monetary Fund plays in the world today. To be blunt, the IMF, as it's currently constituted and how it operates, is an unmitigated disaster. The IMF practices economics the way doctors used to practice medicine 200 years ago. When you got sick 200 years ago, doctors used to bleed you. That, of course, got rid of your pain and suffering because it got rid of you. Unfortunately, the IMF does the same thing today. Wherever it goes around the world, you always get havoc, riots, and distress in its wake. Just look at the record. Mexico in the mid-1990s, disaster. Pacific Rim in 1997, disaster. Russia, 1998, collapse and disaster. Turkey and Argentina earlier this year, collapse and disaster. Now, it's true in the case of Argentina that Argentina's made every economic mistake possible, and they've invented new ways of finding ways to wreck an economy. But the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is that the IMF played key roles in those disasters. Whenever a country is in trouble, or it looks like it might get in trouble, or the IMF thinks it ought to get in trouble, the IMF always recommends two things. They recommend raising taxes. The worst thing you can do when an economy is in trouble is to raise taxes. The United States tried that during the Great Depression. It does not work. It just simply makes the situation worse. In the case of Argentina, they've told Argentina for three years to raise taxes. The Argentinians did so. The economy got smaller and smaller. They raised taxes more and it contracted more. When unemployment a year ago reached 20%, the whole thing fell apart. The same thing's going to happen in Brazil. Why did Lula get elected? It wasn't being a lurch to the left. It was simply out of distress. Brazil today has economic policies of high interest rates, high taxes, and a cheapening currency. That's not the way you get economic growth. The IMF must be fundamentally overhauled. In fact, given its record of disaster wherever it goes, I was surprised we didn't send the IMF to Afghanistan after September 11th. Uh, they, they would have, they would have done, done the Taliban far faster than even our special forces could. Let me, give you, let me give you five principles of economic growth and progress. These principles will sound very, very simple, simplistic as a matter of fact, but it's amazing how often they are violated. One basic principle, of course, is the rule of law, particularly individual equality before the law. How can you have entrepreneurship if that individual is not protected from powerful forces by law? They'll simply crush him or her. And also property rights. Now, there's no more boring subject in the world than perhaps property rights. If you find yourself on an airplane and coach, and you have people in front of you and back of you and beside you, there are two ways you get yourself some elbow room. One is to start talking to them about your health or property rights. That'll send them in the aisles. No more boring subject. We take it for granted, but most, country, most countries in the world do not enjoy the basic rights that we take for granted in the United States and other Western nations. If, for example, you buy a house here in Princeton or an apartment, you can go to a bank in Omaha and get it financed. Everyone recognizes around the country that you own that piece of property. The same is true in other countries, a handful of other countries. But in most countries, they do not have a uniform, open, accessible property system. Japan didn't have one until the U.S. put one in after World War II under General MacArthur. 
Let me give you one example of what I'm talking about. One critical country today, critically located, is Egypt. A couple of years ago, a group of economists in Egypt decided to take a census nationwide to see who owns the nation's businesses and who owns the nation's housing. What they found was rather remarkable when they presented their report to the president. They found that 88% of the businesses in Egypt are illegal, informal. Why? Because it takes months or years to get legal permission to set up a business. In the United States and Canada, for example, you can set up a business in a matter of days. doesn't mean you're going to succeed in it, but at least it's easy to set up. In Egypt, it takes two or three years. That's not just true of the Middle East. In Eastern Europe, in countries like Bulgaria, the new prime minister there, King Simeon, a year ago, took power. One of the first things he did was to try to do one-stop shopping for setting up a business. Beforehand, you had to go to 16 different ministries and God knows how many different licenses before you could have a legal business. In terms of home ownership, they found that 92% of the homes in Egypt, these census takers found, were illegal. Why? Because they don't have a uniform property system. Yes, if you buy a piece of land or a house, you get a deed. But a few miles away, there may be a different property system. Egypt has at least eight different property systems. Guess what? It's hard to get a mortgage in a country like Egypt. Egypt, like many countries, is a nation without addresses. You go to many countries in Latin America, you see these shanty towns around the cities. If you go in those neighborhoods, everyone in those neighborhoods knows who owns which piece of property, which structure. But it's not codified, it's not recognized, so you don't have electricity, you don't have services, can't get mortgages. In Egypt, these economists estimated, and as a matter of fact, to show how crazy it gets, they told Mubarak, the president of Egypt, they said, Mr. President, even your public housing is illegal. He said, what do you mean? We built it. Then they said, Mr. President, look at these pictures of Nasser City. He said, when you put in those structures, they're two stories tall. Look at them today. They're four stories, six stories. People just built on top of them. <clears throat> the government didn't even know it. These economists estimated that the market value of these illegal businesses and houses in Egypt, legal property, is almost $245 billion. In a poverty-stricken country like Egypt, there's a quarter of a trillion dollars of assets that are dead capital because they don't have the systems that we take for granted in the West. So rule of law, absolutely essential. Boring subject, but essential if you want to give people a chance to get ahead and be able to create capital. The second basic principle, of course, is low taxes. One thing political cultures have a hard time understanding is that taxes are not just a means of raising revenue. Taxes are also a price and a burden. The tax you pay on income is the price you pay for working. Tax you pay on profit and capital gains, wherever they're left to these days, is the price you pay for being successful, for taking risks that work. The proposition is very simple. When you lower the price of good things like productive work, risk-taking, success, you tend to get more of them. Raise the price on them, you get less of them. Third basic principle, of course, is sound money. When you have a devaluation of a currency, what happens? In an economic classroom, they may tell you that will improve your terms of trade. In the real world with a developing country, what you're likely to get is a horrific currency collapse, internal inflation, flight capital, who wants to hold a currency that's losing value, 
and a high cost of capital. Who's going to lend when the money's depreciating in value? Very basic stuff. So sound money is very basic. Money should not be a plaything of central banks or politicians. Just give you an example. Most of you have watches. You assume there's 60 minutes in an hour. Imagine what would happen if you floated the hour. 60 minutes an hour one day, 48 minutes the next, 96 minutes an hour the following day, going all over the place. Very hard to function if that thing is floating. Same thing with measurements. Money should be a sound measure. And imagine, you know, a foot in this country is 12 inches. Imagine trying to build a house if they floated the foot. 12 inches one day, 18 inches the next, 6 inches the next. Very hard to build when the standard measurements fluctuate. Same is true of a currency. There are various ways to do it. Fourth basic principle, similar to the rule of law, is make it easy for people to enter and set up businesses. Final one, something that our government needs to be reminded of from time to time, and that is reducing trade barriers and business barriers. Make it easier for people to do business with one another. Lo and behold, they tend to do it. Five basic principles, rule of law, sound money, low taxes, ease of entry into a business, removing business and trade barriers, simple stuff. But read the papers tomorrow with a country like Brazil, and you'll see what happens as those principles, seemingly simple principles, are violated. So in conclusion, in terms of the war on terror, Iraq is just but one part of it. Militarily, we will eventually root out the terrorists. We must, though, have that in conjunction with putting pressure on countries, authoritarian countries, to start liberalizing, just as we did with states like Taiwan and South Korea in the 1980s. At the same time, we must also reform institutions like the IMF, which end up doing countries more harm than good. In fact, one, one reform of the IMF, if you work for the IMF, you get paid in dollars. And you don't pay income taxes. If you owe income taxes, the IMF pays the taxes for you. One reform I thought would be a good one, if I'd been elected, I've tried to do it, is that if you work for the IMF, in the future, instead of being paid in dollars, you'd be paid in the currencies of the countries you advise. I think they'd see the world very, very differently. But that's in the future. But the IMF has to be reformed, so the countries have a chance to get on their feet don't always have to go through periods of unnecessary austerity. But while the struggle will be long, ultimately, because we're an open society and our allies are becoming more open, the forces of good will triumph militarily, politically, and morally. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we're now going to have two students, uh, Duncan and Chelsea, you're going to have microphones. So please raise your hand if you have a question, and then Duncan or Chelsea will bring it to you, bring the microphone to you, and uh, Mr. Forbes, I'm sure, will be happy to answer. Um, the other thing I would just like to urge you before, before we continue the question and answer session is that um, the Princeton Committee Against Terrorism, as some of you know, publishes a twice-monthly foreign policy magazine called American Foreign Policy, free copies, which will tell you more about our organization and hopefully teach you something useful for preceptor available by the door. Thanks. Thank you. As Richard said, feel free to raise your hand and... 
given North Korea's record of violating nuclear agreements until now and the fact that it probably wouldn't develop nuclear weapons in the first place if it were willing to give them up in a moment's notice, what makes you confident that this conflict, unlike with Iraq, can be resolved without war? Um, I think that, unlike Iraq, North Korea does not see itself in an expansionist mode, which it did for a long time after World War II. Even though they were thwarted in the Korean War, they still harbored the idea that someday they could move against South Korea. I think the regime there, given the extraordinary progress South Korea's made, especially after the early 1960s, where it went from one of the poorest countries on earth with a per capita income of 50 to $100 a year to one of the richest nations on earth in just two generations. I think the North Koreans realize uh, South Korea economically and militarily is going to be no pushover as they thought it was in the early 1950s. So they're not in a Saddam-like expansionist mode. They're in a survival mode. The only way they can raise money now, they don't have, unlike Iraq, they don't have nuclear resources. Unlike Iraq, they have strong neighbors, such as China, Russia, Japan, unlike uh, Iraq, which has many weak neighbors. So I think that North Korea realizes that it can't march across uh, a line the way it did in the early 1950s. So in a survival mode, how do you get the money? Well, they've done it by trying to build weapons and selling weapons to rogue regimes or regimes that had aggressive, aggressive intentions around the world. And I think that we have to make clear to them in terms of extorting or getting money from the West in the future, unlike the 1994 agreement where we signed an agreement but we did a lot of winking and nodding that we weren't going to push too hard for real inspections, uh, I think we now have, if we make clear the only way they're going to get the money to survive is by having more accessibility than they had before, I think there's a chance to avoid a conflict. And the signs are letting uh, the Prime Minister of Japan come to North Korea and acknowledging they'd kidnapped a number of Japanese in the 1970s. They never would have done that a couple of years ago. And acknowledging that they'd violated the 94 Agreement on nuclear weapons. Uh, just a few months ago, they were vehemently denying that they had made those violations. So they're at the end of their rope. They've got a starving country. They try to create a zone in the north with the Chinese quashed that they thought would be a quick money maker. In fact, the Chinese arrested the Chinese man who was going to be in charge of it. Uh, so I think North Korea sees its options limited. And if, they, if we dangle money in front of them, I think they might uh, allow the inspectors in just because they want to preserve the regime and they know that they don't have many options left. They can't win militarily. They uh, have no way of getting South Korea. So now they just want to survive. That's the hope. Yeah. Um, how long do you think that it will be after the defeat of Iraq um, that we'll be able to hold democratic elections there? And what happens if those democratic elections result in an anti-U.S. regime? Um, how long will it be to get elections in Iraq? Uh, I don't know. I think probably within a couple of years. Uh, just it's going to take a while to begin to get uh, some democracy in Afghanistan. It's beginning to start. But our military presence there and the military presence of Turks and other allies 
uh, one reason why the forces of regression in, in Afghanistan haven't come back again. One of the huge mistakes the U.S. made in 1991 in the Gulf War was to simply wash our hands of it after the war was over. And uh, we did the same thing with Afghanistan. Once the Soviets were out, we didn't care what happened there. Uh, we learned a painful lesson, uh, just as we learned after World War II. If you don't work to help create uh, democratic institutions, uh, they not, may not rise on their own. So in terms of Iraq, I do think it will be sooner rather than later that you'll start to get on the village level uh, some uh, elections going. And in terms of the elections going against us in Iraq, given Saddam's record, I don't think short-term we'll face what happened in Algeria. But as I indicated earlier, if a country wants to put in an Iranian mullah-like regime, as long as you make it clear that they have to have periodic elections, whether it's three years, five years, you know, pick a number, where people can turn out that regime, I say let them try it. They'll soon quickly learn uh, the modern world will have them learn that uh, certain things don't work very well. So uh, I think we have to be prepared that sometimes the bad guys will win, but let the voters suffer the consequences of it. And as long as they have the chance to change those regimes in a peaceful way, let them try it. Yeah, there's a gentleman back there. There are a lot of people, like, including former UN weapons inspectors, who do believe Saddam this time, that he will allow the inspectors in and that he isn't making any more weapons. Why do you say he's lying? What, what are the reasons just besides, and why do they believe that he's not this time? Well, in terms of uh, his record, even now, even when he met with uh, the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, a few weeks ago and indicated initially that they would be open. Uh, the headline said, you know, Saddam capitulates. When it started to come to negotiating the fine print, some of the obstacles rose again. And the one weapons inspector who tried to do a thorough job, and I think he's got the most credibility on it, is Richard Butler, who headed up the effort in the mid-90s. He was ambassador from Australia to the United Nations for five years, then headed up the uh, UN inspection effort. He thinks that it's hopeless with Saddam. He said uh, he'll never allow you to take TV cameras. He'll always try to block you at certain areas. And to have those weapons inspections really work, they have to be accompanied by armed troops. So they can't go through what uh, Butler and his people did in the mid-'90s, where they'd approach a laboratory or a facility, and oftentimes they'd be greeted by gunfire. Then they'd have to negotiate to get in. It can't be that kind of regime. And so I think his credibility, where he tried to do it in the mid-90s, he doesn't think Saddam's going to uh, change his stripes. And certainly, so far, Saddam is not, if he's tomorrow said, you can bring in inspectors, they can go wherever they want, they can bring armed forces so they don't have to worry about pot shots from my forces. If he did that, I think we'd try it. But I see no sign of him actually doing that. Yes, I've got a couple of people front here. Uh, you mentioned that uh, if in countries like I Iraq 
if people decide to elect a authoritarian ruler, then let them suffer the consequences. But what if the authoritarian ruler, the government, uh, even though they have an election regularly, they hold a corrupt ele election where the results uh, are don't, don't reflect the true votes that people cast. Do you, th do you think the United States should intervene in that kind of situation? And also, I, if you're willing, if you could share your Princeton experience from 30 years ago, there's a lot of talk about anti-intellectual atmosphere on campus these days. I don't know if you're aware of it. Of, of what atmosphere? Anti-intellectual oh. atmosphere. And if you could comment on that and perhaps suggest, make, make some suggestions. On regards to uh, your first question, if you get an authoritarian regime that refuses to abide by elections, I think if it's in a country like Iraq, uh, the regime has to understand uh, force will be used against it. That's why for a long time, I don't think you'll have necessarily American forces in Iraq, but you will have allied forces, uh, I think perhaps the Turks and others. But one way or the other, there will be a presence there. The presence of allied forces in Afghanistan, for example, is the only reason the current regime, the Karzai regime, is in power, uh, because uh, otherwise it would have been overthrown by, uh, one of, by the uh, warlords that still plague that country. So yes, you have to make it clear uh, with elections, uh, the uh, regime can't come in and say, uh, we'll have election 10 years from now. Um, they've got to stick by uh, rule of law. In terms of the atmosphere, anti-intellectual atmosphere that allegedly plagues Princeton today, um, Certainly, I haven't noticed it, primarily because I haven't been around very much lately. But uh, 30 years ago, uh, wouldn't have been described as anti-intellectual. But given the ferment that surrounded the Vietnam War, uh, the final exams in my senior year were canceled. They just stopped classes a month before it should have been canceled in reaction to the U.S. incursion in Cambodia. So. Uh, uh, there were uh, occupations, uh, there were disruptions. So you may not have called it any intellectual, but it certainly made it sometimes hard to uh, you know, get some work done. So uh, these things happen from time to time. Uh, at least then we could blame it on a war. Maybe you can blame it on Saddam Hussein, another reason why he should be overthrown. You can start to study again. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, gentlemen there. Uh, if I understood you correctly, uh, you said earlier that perhaps in Iran, um, if the government was to be overthrown, it would come eternally, uh, internally. Um, what is preventing that from happening in Iraq? Um, that would be my first question. Sorry, I'm doing another two-part thing. Um, and the second one is that, do you think that we should have forces, it seems like you said, um, accompany the UN inspectors, and what would that do? Would, I mean, would it perhaps lead to shootouts, which seems like something that wouldn't be wanted? Um, and also, um, as far as bringing in cameras and other stuff and going into presidential palaces, um, I know one concern was that in the past, information gathered by the inspectors was used to target um, Iraq in strikes um, afterwards. And do you think that's a valid concern of the Iraqi government? Oh, the, to answer the second part of your question, in terms of uh, uh, targets in Iraq, the only time it was targeted was when they had stuff there they shouldn't have had. 
and uh, in violation of the agreements that Saddam was, was supposed to adhere to after the 91 Gulf War. So uh, that's the whole purpose of inspections. If there's stuff there that shouldn't be there, you got to do something about it. And in terms of having uh, armed people with you, uh, one of the way inspectors were intimidated in the past or restricted was they'd be greeted by soldiers who said, you can't enter here. And when they tried, they'd be shot at. So uh, having armed escorts is a way of making sure the inspectors can go where they need to go they won't be obstructed uh, by Saddam's uh, special forces. And in terms of uh, Iraq, why can't you have internal regime change? Because Saddam's regime is a true, not authoritarian regime, it's almost totalitarian. Uh, any internal dissent has been systematically squashed, and not just by arrests and newspaper closings such as you have in Iran, but by massive torture, arresting you torturing you, your family, anyone who was associated with you. His methods really took a page from Joseph Stalin, if you read what happened in the uh, 30s and 40s in the Soviet Union. Uh, those are the methods that he uses. So internal revolt, impossible. It did happen in 1991, but in a huge mistake, the United States allowed Saddam to use warships, helicopters, to ferry troops around to put down those uh, rebellions. If we had uh, barred them Saddam from using his aircraft and helicopters, he would have been overthrown in uh, 1991. Uh, but uh, that, that was a missed opportunity. So he's just much more ruthless and efficient than the Ayatollahs have been in Iran. Not that Iran's any paradise, but uh, it's not of a Stalinist, uh, yet of a Stalinist uh, nature. Yeah. Like you said, um, if we go into Iraq, we have to uh, keep troops on the ground there afterwards to help build up a regime and uh, repair some of the damage, obviously, that would be um, done to Iraq. But um, what guarantee do we have uh, that would, in fact, happen, considering those promises have been made every time the United States has gone into a country? Uh, of course, troops are in Afghanistan still, but the only place that's safe for uh, Karzai and his regime to be is in the capital itself, and they're having problems. And, uh, of course, we still have people in Yugoslavia, but uh, we haven't given them nearly enough money to rebuild um, all the damage that was done by the NATO bombers. And how can we ensure that we do it right um, and learn from those lessons now in Iraq? I think uh, the, the, the reason is uh, we've learned from painful experience when you don't do it right. Uh, just as World War I the aftermath of the First World War taught us not to have, how, how not to uh, do, do things after World War II. We did learn from the mistakes of the post-World War I period, did it much better after World War II. So, too, I think we've uh, learned painfully uh, that if we don't stay involved, uh, bad things will happen again. And uh, in terms of uh, Kosovo in uh, the former Yugoslavia, I think there is a prime example. There we've relied on the Europeans to do most of the work in Kosovo and Bosnia. Uh, even though we still have troops there, it has not worked well. And a lot of Bosnians want the U.S. to, in effect, take uh, charge from the Europeans, the West Europeans, in terms of uh, trying to rebuild that area. So, uh, like it or not, uh, especially this government, which uh, did not want to uh, make long-term commitments uh, post-September 11th, I think there's a realization, like it or not, 
If we want to fight successfully, we have to stay involved to help nurture the forces of liberalization, or else uh, the bad guys through force can undo what we so painfully uh, tried to achieve. So we do learn from experience from time to time. Yes? As a result of uh, all the military activity, uh, I think uh, uh, the United States government is going to do in the future, uh, do you think there's going to be a draft? And uh, if there would be a draft, do you think it would uh, change from the way it was originally uh, in years past, uh, maybe during Vietnam, and, for example, college students being eligible as they originally weren't? Um, in terms of a draft being reinstituted, barring a world war, uh, the answer is no. Um, it's not uh, what, what, what is going to cost in terms of military expenditures in the future is not personnel, uh, but new high-tech weapon systems. And so what, uh, unlike the mass armies you had in the 20th century, a military strength today is not having massive armies. It's having uh, smart weapons and people who know how to use those weapons. So it's not mass numbers. It's uh, brain power and uh, being on the cutting edge of uh, R&D. In terms of uh, if we ever get a draft because of a world conflagration, it will be very different from what it was in the uh, 60s and early 70s, uh, where you did have college deferments. Uh, at the end of that period, uh, they brought in a new system, which was a lottery. On your 18th birthday, uh, you picked a number, and uh, or they picked numbers, and uh, those are birthdays that fell in the first 180, they picked numbers 1 through 365. If you're in the first 180, uh, you're going to be drafted. Uh, the latter 180, you got by it, but it was an open draft, and regardless of uh, who you were, where you were, what your race was, uh, what your income was, it didn't matter. If you got the right number, you got out. If you didn't, uh, you went in. I think it'll be something like that rather than uh, the deferment system, which really was a corrupting system and a morally wrong system. So whatever happens, again, I think it'll be very different. But I don't think it's going to happen. It's not uh, massive armies we need. It's uh, wholly different from the kind of warfare that we've had in the past uh, 20th century. I think we have time for one more question. And uh, why don't we, well, we'll do you, and then we'll do the gentleman in the back. Okay. Um, well, you've talked a lot about, like, currently how involved we are in Afghanistan and how we'll have to be very involved in Iraq and possibly in North Korea as well. And eventually I'll see it also in Africa as terrorist cells move there where it's very, you know, conducive to them operating. Um, do you think the United the U.S. is in a position to be involved in all these nation-rebuilding schemes um, at a time when we're possibly in a recession here and have a deficit. I think a lot of people here are concerned of where we need to be putting our resources, and you think that that will <clears throat> be the best for us in the long term and in the short term? Um, if you take the most pessimistic scenario in terms of what, we're, what we might have to spend on the military in the next uh, decade, uh, the most pessimistic one I've seen is that we'd have to go from 3% of GDP to 5% of GDP, which would be involve several hundred billion dollars. But to put that in perspective, that would be far less than what we spent in the 80s, 
and about half of what we spent in the 1950s. So in terms of affordability, uh, that's, not, that's not the question. The question is, how do we use those resources most effectively? I think that's where we need cooperation with allies. We can't do it alone. We need allied cooperation in terms of some of these nations, like the Turks are now doing in Afghanistan. Uh, we need cooperation on intelligence services uh, in Europe and elsewhere. So uh, in that sense, uh, we can't do it alone. But in terms of sheer cost, uh, that, that, that shouldn't be an inhibitor. It's far smaller than what we've done in previous efforts. Gentleman in the back there. In answering a, in answering a uh, previous question, you mentioned the perceived failure of West European forces to keep the peace in Kosovo. What do you make of West European, especially French, opposition to war in Iraq now? Um, in terms of uh, why France is behaving like France, um, I think uh, there are different theories on it. One is that uh, they want to prove that they still matter. And since they have a permanent seat on the Security Council as a result of the Second World War, uh, they can veto a resolution. And they're just trying to show that we have to pay attention to them. By the way, if the UN truly was reformed, one of the things that would be done on the Security Council is not have France there, but a representative of the European Union there in the future, instead of one nation, have the whole EU there represented there. But uh, I think France, as I say, is trying to show that it matters. I think there is, uh, it's human nature. There's resentment that the United States is what it is. Uh, when you're big and successful, uh, people want to always want to take you down a notch. And uh, so you put that together, and France has always been a thorn in our side. Although, uh, although in 1962, when we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the big and in a big crisis, uh, they, they, they quickly uh, close ranks. Uh, when John Kennedy, for example, uh, sent a representative to President de Gaulle in 62 and said, Here are the, here's the evidence that we have of the Soviets putting missiles into Cuba, uh, de Gaulle took the envelope and threw it back at him. He said, I'll take your word for it. I'm with you. Get on with it. So on the big thing, uh, they've, they've, they've come by, but in uh, other areas, uh, you have to work hard to bring them on board. And also, I think France, although no one seems to mention it, uh, France does have business dealings with Iraq, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business dealings that I don't think, I think they're worried that that might be jeopardized. And uh, so uh, I think uh, that's an unspoken factor as well. But in the future, I hope someday the Security Council will get the EU. Not that the EU would, might be any better, but at least it would be more representative of uh, Western Europe than uh, of Europe, now becoming Europe with their expansion, than uh, simply one nation that's on there as a result of what the situation was in 1945. So I think there's needs to be changed there. Well, it's past 8 o'clock, and uh, we promise to have you out at 8. Uh, thank you again for your kindness in coming. Appreciate it.